do a special shout out for moms, as Mike did earlier. And actually, we have some of our own doing their own shout outs to their own moms. And I want you to see that right now. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I love you. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I hope you have a great day. Love you. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I love you. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I love you. Happy Happy Mother's Mother's Day. Day. We love love you. you. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. Aw, thank you, Emma. Happy Mother's Day. I love my mom. Peace. Peace. Wow, well done. There's the police. Wave. Hey. Hey. Got your coffee. Wow, thanks. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. I love my mama because she makes the bestest chocolate chip pancakes. I love my mom because she's always there for me. I like it when my mom plays Uno Flip with me. My favorite thing to do with my mom is take long walks. Hey mom, happy Mother's Day. Thank you for everything you do. Great stuff, the great stuff. We, we are excited about uh, in a few weeks being able to be back together again and we'll be talking more about that in the future, but right now I want to show, uh, shout out another thank you, and that is to all the volunteers and staff that make uh, our online services happen live every Sunday. So we can can we pan around and kind of get a shot how how things who, who's really doing the work in here? All right, yeah, great stuff. Appreciate appreciate everyone's ministry to make this all happen, and and then one other thing, uh, we are making plans to being together. In the, next, uh, in the next few weeks, and we'll let you know about that. But before we do that, before we open up officially, uh, if you are part of our deacon board or leadership board, or you are currently serving when the stay-at-home order came, if that describes you, we invite you and your families to come in. Families, no child care, but we invite you to come in and just sit in here live like we've been doing this whole time and kind of watch what's going on and just uh, be a part of us that way. So if you want to do that, you're welcome to join us. We're here live every Sunday. Come in. It'll look different, but check out what's happening. And again, we thank you for being involved at Grace. We're in a series, part four. We're talking about isolated, but not alone. And we've been working our way through Philippians as we do that. And we were in Philippians 2 last week, and now we're in Philippians 3, and I want to start off by reading you the first verse. Paul says this, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. All over this letter, Paul keeps returning to the theme of joy, repeatedly, joy, joy, joy. And, and he's saying that to the church in Philippi, but he's also saying that to the other churches that read his letter, including us. And why would he do that? Why would he keep saying, joy, have joy, rejoice, have joy? Why repeatedly? Because we forget. And Paul's telling us, as believers, we should be living a vibrant Christian life 
And joy is part of that. And sometimes I think we need a little bit of a reset. Uh, Like many of you, this year I'm reading through the Bible and I'm doing that on a Kindle. And there are different sections that, that are slated for me to read every day. And as I was doing that, I actually have a couple of iPads. The one I use for that's an iPad I have at home. But I was noticing when I'd click on the tab to link me to the current passage, sometimes it would freeze up a little bit. And then what I would have to do is get out of it and come back into Kindle. And then that would reset it. And then it would work great again. I think Paul's telling us that there's a bunch of us, we need a joy reset in our life. And so the question is, that we might have over and over in this book, is how do we have a vibrant Christian life of joy? And I'm going to unfold that for you, what Paul says in the first half of chapter 3, because he breaks it down for us. How can we have a vibrant Christian life of joy? Three, three parts, three things. First, oh Jesus everything. Oh Jesus everything. The human condition is that we keep falling into this trap of thinking that we can save ourselves, but we can't. We keep thinking if we do the right thing, if we do what God wants us to do, then God owes us and we will be okay with God. And subtly, maybe without even realizing it, We're actually thinking that we're obligating God. We're really getting God to serve us so that he will owe us. But Paul says that's exactly not the case. And he says it in dramatic form beginning in the next verse, verse 2. Here's what he says. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now those are strong words. And when Paul starts out talking about dogs and uh, evil doers and the false circumcision. He's identifying a group of people who had infiltrated the church. They were connected to the church and they were, we call them Judaizers. And basically, although they're connected to the Christian church, they were saying that even believers who have put their faith in Christ need to keep the Old Testament law. And by keeping the Old Testament law, You know, that sort of appeases God. And Paul says, no, that's impossible. Our righteousness cannot come from keeping the law. Our righteousness, our forgiveness, our relationship with God 
is a total gift. We owe Jesus everything. And to make his case, then Paul lists out his credentials, which, by the way, would have been very impressive to the, this group of Judaizers because they were all about the Jewish religion and the Old Testament. And Paul whips out his credentials. Now, to us, when we read that, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew, Hebrews, it's kind of a weird list. But I got to tell you, a lot of people who call themselves Christians have lists. They're just different lists. They don't sound as weird to us. But things that we have done that we think that God kind of owes us because we've done it. Now, the way you, and that's not easily to, easy to see in ourselves. But so here's a question that sometimes by asking, we can get to the root of that. Here's a question. If you died and went to heaven and God said, why should I let you into heaven? It's not going to happen. Again, just theoretically, if you died, went to heaven, God said, he's at the gates and he said, why should I let you in? I want you to think right now, what would you say? Why should he let you in? What would you say to him? Because most people... Even people who call themselves Christians, they start answering that question with, well, because I always tried to do the right thing, or because I go to church, or because I took care of my family, or because I always wanted to do... All that is wrong. None of that gets us to heaven. It's Christ and Christ alone. We owe Jesus everything. And all of us, in order for us to become a Christian, especially if we're older in life, a, a believer, we need to repent of our own righteousness. We need to repent of, of kind of subtly thinking that we can save ourselves by our own righteousness. And we need to fully embrace the fact that forgiveness is a total gift. So that's the first step. You want to have a vibrant Christian life, a joy? First, remember, you owe Jesus everything. You need to understand that. Then, secondly, you need to know Jesus personally. Not just know about Jesus. You need to know Jesus personally. Look at it as we pick up where we left off in verse 8. He says, more than that. I count all things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's kind of interesting that he puts my Lord because that's like one of the only times he does this. He's very personal here. Knowing, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You know, what Paul's talking about here is knowing Christ personally. If we love someone, we enjoy getting to know them deeply. If we love God, 
We don't just want to know about God. We don't just want to know about Jesus. We don't just want the facts. We want to know God. We want to know Christ closely, intimately, personally. And the amazing thing is, just a lot of times we don't take time to really enjoy the presence of God. We get so busy and so wrapped up with, with life. We don't just slow down and experience his presence. T take a walk with God. Be with him. Shut other things out for a while. See life through his perspective. Be aware of his presence. Seek to know God more deeply. Know God deeply. And, and if you're a Christian, surely there are times in your life where you felt that. But that shouldn't just be for once in a while in our life. We, we want to have a vibrant, joyful life. Know Jesus personally on a day-to-day -day personal level. And I think a lot of times, maybe when we most experience this, is when we have struggles or problems in our life. Maybe that's where our world kind of comes crashing down and we feel God's presence. We experience God's nearness to us. Well, don't wait for the struggles for that to happen. We can experience that sweet connection with God every day. That's part of knowing him on a personal level. Everything Jesus did on the cross was so that we could know God. Not just believe that he exists, not just believe that Jesus was who he said he was, but that we could believe him. But more than that, know him. Here we have the transcendent creator of the universe offering to us his creation friendship, closeness, intimacy. Hey, we owe Jesus everything because of the cross and we want to know Jesus personally. And then third, last one, we need to grow in Jesus persistently. You want to experience the vibrant Christian life of joy. Well, then he's calling us to grow in Jesus persistently. And how do we do that? Paul says, by pressing on. You see, God doesn't demand that we change our life first and then come to know him. God doesn't say change first thing. God takes us where we are and we just call out on him and he forgives us. If we call out in sincere faith, he forgives us and he cleanses us. And it changes our life forever. Now, some people will say, well, yeah, I believe in God and everything. But for me, Christianity is very private. It's a private matter. I don't like to talk about it or discuss it. It's very internally private to me. Hey, well. If you're saying that, then you're in danger of making Christianity just a little p 
peace of your life. And, and you might not understand what true Christianity is. You've just salted in a little bit of Christianity and you want to keep it private because you want to keep that compartmentalized so it doesn't really bleed over into the other areas of your life. That's not what Christianity is. Other people say, hey, well, Kevin, hey, I've always believed. I grew up in a Christian home. I've always believed. And if, you're, if you say that, you're probably not a believer because nobody always believed. You have to grow up and make a decision to follow Christ. Now, I don't mean that you're intentionally lying. I, what I'm saying is that you may be, without realizing it, deceiving yourself. If you think you've just always been a believer, that's not what Christianity is. Don't deceive yourself in that way. Make a decision to actively follow God with your life. And when you do that, your entire life has changed because it's become all about one thing. God's perspective on your life. How you can follow him. It's all God. It's all grace. Look how Paul continues um, as, uh, on this grow in Jesus. Here, uh, beginning of verse 10, next verse. He sort of transitions from knowing Jesus to growing in Jesus. Here's what he says. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's Paul describing here? He's talking about his sanctification He's, he's talking about him growing closer and closer to God. That he hasn't arrived at perfection yet. He wants to be closer to God every day. And, and our growth as Christians, it should be constant. And we do that by pressing on. Forgetting what's behind and pressing on to what's in front of us. And a lot of people will say, hey... Kevin, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what's in my past. Forget what's behind and press on, Paul's telling us. Life's like a race, Paul says in other places, that a race of endurance. For Paul, the Christian life is like a marathon. I, I, just this week, a couple of friends of mine asked, hey, did I want to go running with him? And I passed. I'm thinking, I haven't ran in a long time. I, I told him, I'll just slow you down. And, and we all know what a marathon is, right? That's just over 26 miles. Have you ever heard of an ultramarathon? An ultramarathon is a much, much longer race. And Tim and I got to talking about this in the office the other day. Uh, the, it might have been Friday, the, the, this ultramarathon. Because there's this amazing story. It, it began in, in 1983. There was an ultramarathon. Ultra called the Westfield Run. That's because they went from a Westfield Mall in Sydney, Australia, and ran to a Westfield Mall in Melbourne, Australia. 
543.7 miles. A 544-mile run. Can you imagine that? This run attracted uh, runners from all over the world, elite runners, over 150 elite runners. And if you could just imagine it, because this is a freaky story. If you could just imagine, everybody's getting ready for this race. It's 544 miles. It takes like a week. And so they're getting ready on the starting line. And all of a sudden, a man shows up. He's a toothless potato farmer, 61 years old. His name is Cliff Young. He's wearing overalls and rubber boots because he thought it might rain. And everybody thinks he's there to, uh, to just be a spectator, but he actually goes over to the res- res- registration table and he gets his numbers. And so he puts his number on and the race starts. Well, not only was his appearance a little unusual w- with these elite runners, I mean, he's 61. Not, not only that, but he didn't run like everybody else. He sort of had this loping style that they, they came to call a shuffle, the Cliff Young shuffle. Now, when the gun went off, all the other runners went past Clyde, Cliff, and Cliff just kind of run along. And, um, and the strategy of these runners in a race like this is most runners would run about 18 hours a day, and then they would stop and they would sleep for six hours. Something like that was their schedule. Well, Well, nobody told Cliff that, and he just kept running and running and running. When he first did stop to get some sleep, because they all have, you know, some people following them, like a van to take care of them. By the way, the news media keyed in on Cliff Young because they thought this guy could die in this race. So they were kind of paying attention to him, even though he started out way back. Well, well, when he finally did stop to sleep, one of the guys that was supposed to be kind of helping him, and he was sleeping in his van... He didn't have his contacts in. He set the alarm for two hours. And two hours later, Cliff got up and started running again. He ran and he ran and he ran. When everybody else stopped, he kept running. Cliff Young, at 61 years old, ends up winning the race in five days, 15 hours, and four minutes. It was actually a record for that distance of time. I mean, he just, they're at the finish line and and he makes it he actually beat the next guy by about nine hours he won this race by nine hours when when they got to the finish line and only six people finished this race out of out of whoever started and they presented cliff at the finish line with the prize of ten thousand dollars he looked confused and realized he said he didn't realize that there was any prize money for running the race And so he turned to the other five guys who had finished and he let them split up the $10,000, $2,000 apiece. And then they asked him, Cliff, Cliff, you going to run this again? And he said, no. (laughs) It's crazy. What's Paul telling us? Paul's telling us, like a marathon runner, which, which was around, the Olympic marathons were around on Paul's day, he's saying, run the race. Press on. Forget what's behind. Keep, keep going forward. And what do we learn from this? That growth, it's not passive. It doesn't just come because we've been a Christian for a few years. It's not passive. We, we have to do it. And here we're back to the two sides 
of something we talked about last time. There's two sides of this argument with legalists. I mean, here the, the two sides. One are these Judaizers or legalists today who say, hey, well, if you're a Christian, you've got to follow the law. I mean, you have to do the law. That's part of being And if you're not doing the law. And, and we get what that means. But we cannot take that too far because Paul's saying, no, the law is not a stairway to God. It is a signpost to Jesus. The whole purpose of the law wasn't so that we can do it and earn righteousness. It was all pointing to Christ. It was all pointing out that we couldn't do it. And then on the other side, from the legalists, you have other people who say, hey, how you live doesn't matter. Even shameful acts, they don't matter. If it's in the flesh, the flesh is not important. They were saying that then, people say that today. And Paul says to that, no. He says, live up to your calling. You could never earn salvation. He goes, hey, if anybody could earn it, I would have earned it. And I consider that all rubbish, dung, human excrement, sewage. I consider that all rubbish. It's nothing. Christ is everything. You see, through faith we become a Christian. We realize Christ is the only righteous one. And he voluntarily gives us his righteousness when we come in faith. But when we do come to faith sincerely, then we follow. And our lives are changed. I know today, people live to be happy. And we order our lives around What's best for us? What, what will make us happy? Our families happy? But when we become a Christian, we realize that our purpose is to glorify God. And by the way, these two things are not mutually exclusive. Because we realize as believers that if we live a life that glorifies God, we will have an internal vibrancy on, and joy that will always be present with us. The problem is, a lot of times Christians today, we, we live our Christian life on autopilot. And we just kind of go through the motions. We don't really stop our lives and focus on our relationship with God every day. Hey, Paul's telling us, you want to have vibrancy. You want to have joy in your Christian life. Three steps. Oh, Jesus, everything. you got to understand, you owe Jesus everything. It's not us, it's him. He's accomplished for us what we could not do. Oh, Jesus, everything. Next step, know Jesus personally. And I'm not talking about entering into salvation. I'm talking about living out your salvation in a personal connection, intimacy with God, closeness with God. Know Jesus personally. And third step, grow in Jesus persistently. Don't give up. Keep pressing on. Keep going. Keep shuffling. Keep running. And if you're not doing that, if you don't have that vibrancy, that joy, then my question is, what's hindering you? What's, what's keeping you from following Christ? What's keeping you from pressing on?
And I want to challenge you to take time, whether you're busy or, or you're bored out of your mind during this season, take time. Focus on your relationship with God. Remember, you owe Jesus everything. You want to know Jesus personally. And you want to grow in Jesus persistently. I want to challenge you. Pray with faith. Act with courage. Never stop. Never stop pressing on. Because God wants a close, intimate connection, a relationship with you. Let's pray together. Father God, we, we thank you that you've never stopped loving us. No matter who we are, Christian, non-Christian. But I pray that you would help us, everyone tuned in right now or, or even later, Lord, that you'd help us to be what you want us to be. That we'd get rid of the distractions in our life. We would tune in to you. And specifically, we would come to the complete, overwhelming understanding that we owe Jesus everything. That by your grace, and, and he did everything he did so that we could know Jesus personally. And it doesn't stop there. Now we can grow in Jesus persistently by pressing on as he gives us the strength and the power to do that. But it's not passive for us. God, give us the strength, courage, wisdom we need to live for you. In Christ's name we pray.